here, uh, this little story itself, faith isn't even mentioned. Though it does suggest something about the faith of these Jewish mourners. Uh, here, here is an event that is riddled with tragedy. A, a widowed mother bearing her only adult son. Now death, of course, is always horrible, isn't it? And while we might expect to have to bury our parents at some point, no one ever wants to be at their child's funeral. And yet this woman's plight is even worse. She has no husband and now she has no son. No one to care for her, no, one, uh, no further inheritance amongst her people. And look at what Jesus does in verses 13. <clears throat> and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the, the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And notice as you read this passage that Jesus' compassion here is for this poor woman. Uh, three times he refers to her in verse 13. The Lord saw her. He had compassion on her and said to her. And, and then when he raises her son, Jesus gave him to her in verse 15. His concern is for this poor woman and the terrible situation that she's in. And that's in spite of the fact that there's no evidence that any of the crowd of mourners had any faith in Jesus at all. Which if we realise where all of this, of course, is taking place, then we might actually wonder why they aren't asking Jesus to do something. Because the town of Nain, you might, might be aware that it's right nearby a town called Shunem, where another great prophet, Elisha, had raised the son of the Shunammite woman. And so there's history in this place. But it's not until Jesus steps in and raises this woman's son that they finally recognise Jesus as a great prophet and that God has visited them. And yet ultimately, though, there are, they're no different to most Israelites, these people. They believe because they saw a miracle, but they didn't seem to understand fully what they were seeing. They didn't have the faith of the Roman centurion. That is, he knew the power of Jesus' word and the authority of God that he had. And he didn't need uh, miracles to convince him. But I think perhaps most, the more surprising example here is the one that we're coming up to, and that is the one of John the Baptist. I mean, John has been wrongfully imprisoned by the wicked King Herod. But the reports about Jesus have started to spread, and he's heard they've reached him, and he's confused. Let's just have a look at what he says here from verses eight, verse 18 and following. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, back in chapter 3 of Luke, John was introduced as the great messenger of God. Uh, he was a, one who was appointed to announce and prepare the way for God's Messiah, for Jesus. Now, you'd kind of think that John would be hearing these incredible reports about what Jesus is doing and celebrating, but something doesn't seem quite right to him. And so he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus to his face, are you the great saviour of God's people? Are you the king of God's coming kingdom? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And look at what happens, verse 21. In that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. 
lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. You see, here is the arrival of God's great salvation, the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. This is a a foretaste of heaven that Jesus is bringing. Jesus, by his actions and by his words, was bringing the kingdom of God into this world. But it seems that John's expectations were a little bit different. It seems that, that he thought the kingdom would come with judgment. There's good reasons for him to think that, and that it would come with the overthrow of the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. But here's John, whom Jesus says in verse 28 is the greatest of those born of women, who was the prophet of God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And he's still languishing in prison at the hands of the Roman-appointed King Herod. And yet John was right about the overthrow of God's enemies. Only they weren't the enemies that, God, that John imagined. That is, Jesus didn't come with an army to overthrow the Romans. Jesus came to defeat Satan and the wicked havoc that he pours out on our world. Now, ultimately, he would uh, do that, defeat Satan by his sacrificial death on the cross. But here in Luke chapter 7, the actions of Jesus are actually showing the victory that he was winning over the devil because he healed the sick servant of the centurion. And the word Luke, Luke uses there for healed is actually the word saved. He saved him and he raised the widow's son. And then in verse 21, as we just read, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. I mean, Jesus was saving people by releasing them from their slavery to Satan in sin and sickness and death. That always was the plan. And it's exactly what the Old Testament prophets had predicted. Uh, In in chapter 7, Luke is fleshing out the salvation that Jesus brings that he had announced back in chapter 4 of Luke. And remember when Jesus was in the synagogue in, in, uh, in Nazareth, uh, they handed Jesus a scroll, the Bible, to read, and Jesus read from Isaiah 61, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, let, let's just have a quick look at what he read back there in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Here is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So here is what Jesus is doing. And exactly what we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 35, God's prophets predicted this is what Jesus would do. Jesus said he would do it, and God sent him to do it. And the people of Israel especially should have understood his actions. They should have, but many didn't. And that's the point of what Jesus says next about John and and how people responded to his message. John, we're told here, was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, He was God's messenger to prepare the way for Jesus to come as God's king and saviour. Crowds of people would come out into the desert to hear John preach and to be baptised by him in the Jordan River. And, And the message that John preached was a call to repentance. He boldly called people to turn away from their sin and turn back to God, that they might be saved from his judgment. And so John's role was to get people ready for Jesus, God's saviour. 
But while John came announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ was bringing in the kingdom of God. And while John was preparing the way for the coming of the king, Jesus Christ is the king. You see, here is the difference that Jesus makes. And it's a difference that is so great that Jesus can say that the greatest person who ever lived outside of God's kingdom is, the, is less than the least person who is in the kingdom of God. See verse 28? Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, it's better to be a complete nobody in this world and yet a citizen in the kingdom of God than to be the greatest person in this world and yet to miss out on the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us in verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. It seems like the way that people were responding to Jesus was directly in line with the way they'd been responding to John. Many in the crowd followed Jesus, even some despicable tax collectors. They'd heard John's call to confess their sins, to turn back to God, and they'd done that. They recognised now the righteousness of God, that God is right, and they put their faith in Jesus. But on the other hand, there are those, the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they had refused John's baptism. They were never willing to acknowledge their own sinfulness. They really thought that they were good enough. After all, uh, they were already God's people, weren't they? And so they wouldn't submit to John's call to repent. And in turn, they rejected Jesus and the salvation that he was offering them. And it's still like that, isn't it? So many people in our world today, they think they're okay because they're good people, they're moral people, maybe they're even religious people. But God's not impressed by great people or by our self-righteousness. What he wants is a changed heart that acknowledges our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. And so as they reject John, so they reject the salvation that Jesus is offering them. They're like the children in the marketplace who won't dance or won't weep. That is, they hear Jesus speak, they see his miracles, but they won't trust him. They won't put their faith in him. They won't listen and hear what is going on. And so Jesus actually exposes their utter arrogance and their foolishness in this final encounter that Jesus has with a sinful woman. And in this last little section, uh, we actually didn't read it then. Uh, it's a long chapter, but Jesus is invited to dine with a Pharisee named Simon and his friends. Uh, these, were, these were considered the good guys. They were the morally upright of society. Uh, and while Jesus is reclining at the table with them, uh, these are men of standing, someone comes in looking for him. Uh, look there at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. See, a woman of the city comes looking for Jesus. 
Now, the, the term actually suggests that she's probably a prostitute, possibly even a sex slave. Everyone knew her as a sinner. In fact, she's described that way three times in this section. Everyone knew her as unlovable, as unforgivable. I wonder if you've ever known anybody like that. I recently read about a drug-addicted mum in Tasmania who sold her 12-year-old daughter out for sex with over 100 men in four weeks. And her reason was so that she could pay her house off and buy a couple of cars. Perhaps the words unlovable and unforgivable are the words that come to mind. But here's this woman who everyone knows as a sinner. And she stands behind Jesus weeping. And she cries enough tears to wet his feet. And so she bends down and she wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet and puts oil on them. Why does she do this? Well, meanwhile, Jesus' credibility is being called into question by the Pharisees and his friends. How could he let her even touch him? To the morally upright Pharisee, this was an unacceptable person, somebody to be shunned and excluded. So much for his status as a prophet, as a holy man. But Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking, and so he tells Simon a parable, uh, and he asks a question with an obvious answer. Look what he says there in verse 41. He says to Simon, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, Simon's answer to Jesus' question is self-condemning, even if he doesn't recognise it. It was obvious who loved Jesus more. Simon did none of the things that Jesus mentions, while the woman doesn't stop pouring out her affection upon Jesus. Simon was a moral man. He hadn't done anything like what this woman had done. But Christianity is much more than morality. It's obvious who loved more, and the reason she loved so much is because she had been forgiven so much. In all of his morality, not only was Simon unwilling to accept a forgiven sinner, but he saw no need for his own forgiveness. He was blinded to his own sinfulness and his own lack of love. Have you come to the point of recognising the darkness in your own heart? Every lie, every lustful thought, every piece of gossip or slander, a desire to covet, every action that has not pleased God. Yeah, our sin, when we add it up, is incalculable. And so is God's love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And so the more important question is, have you come to this point where you can truly say that you are at peace with God? For Jesus can say to this woman in the final verse there, 
your faith has saved you, go in peace. I mean, like the Roman centurion who said to Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. So here is the faith that saves, that rescue, that brings real peace. Simon's friends asked the right question, right? Who is this who even forgives sins? Here is the salvation that Jesus brings to all who humble themselves and put their faith in Jesus our Saviour. See, Christianity is about the relationship of love that we have through our relationship with Jesus and then the love that we have for each other because of him. See, we're forgiven lovers of God and we're forgiven lovers of each other because, God, because love is the measure of your forgiveness. Love is the measure of your salvation. As John Newton so rightly said, although my memory's fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a moment to pause and reflect on all that you have done for us by sending your own son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to be our saviour. Father, please help us to look to him in faith to trust all that he has done for us in dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. Lord, Lord God, help us to see that in Jesus we have peace with God and hope for eternal life. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.